Well, great, and welcome uh, to Oceanside Sanctuary. God is good, Oceanside is good. This is a nice day and a nice place. So if you're a first-time visitor at Oceanside Sanctuary, we certainly welcome you though, uh, on behalf of all of us. Um, there are two ways to let us know that you're here today. Uh, you can grab one of those connection cards. Could someone hold one of those clipboards with a connection card up? Yes, thanks, Janelle. Right, those are great things. You can comment about anything. I mean, it truly is a connection card with a QR code and, you know, uh, you can drop it when you're finished filling it out in the little box by the door. Um, but you can say anything you want. You can ask any questions you want. You can comment on Pastor Jason's shirt. You can, whatever you'd like to do, the connection card is a good thing. So uh, today we're having our annual congressional meeting. Uh, it's right after the service at 1115. I attended last year's and it was really great. It was terrific. Um, so transparent and, and uh, made me even feel more great about being a member here. So everybody's invited. Um, but uh, Jason and the board will talk about, you know, the year coming up and uh, all the good things they're hoping for. And I, I think ultimately there'll be a vote as well, right? Got it. Thanks, Janelle. And uh, later today, two to four, uh, a junior high pool party in Encinitas. Uh, fun in the sun, drop your kids off, parents are welcome, feel free to invite your junior high friends as well. But you do need to RSVP for the event and you can do that as soon as you leave today. I mean, it's not too late to do that. 2 to 4.30 today. Uh, and our book club is taking the annual summer break. Uh, July and August are off. Back in September on the 7th. Uh, to discuss uh, Love Big or Go Home by Phil Wyman. Uh, not Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones, it's Phil Wyman. Uh, and uh, you can get uh, details, of course, on the website, OceansideSanctuary.org, right on the calendar. And uh, lastly, support the mission here. Of course, this is a not-for-profit charity, a 501c3. So anything you can do, whether it's one time in the box or, you know, whether it's a monthly thing you'd like to do via the website, um, it's, it's greatly appreciated and it's so, uh, so needed uh, to make this mission happen and to make this mission grow uh, each and every God. It seems like every week the mission grows. Uh, so it's very, very cool. If you're new here, my name is Jason Coker and I'm uh, the co-lead minister along with Janelle. And this is when we normally enter into a teaching time. But before we do that, we have two more weeks of me making a kind of special announcement before my teaching. And that special announcement is that we are in one of the two seasons of our church where we talk a little bit about money. For those of you who have been around here for a while, you know we don't pass an offering plate or an offering basket. We don't really do an offering here, which all of my colleagues in ministry think is really weird. They don't understand how it is that we're not passing a plate every Sunday. Well, the reason is because churches have an abysmal reputation around money. You might have noticed that. You might have noticed that churches have a tendency to make almost everything about money. And when they do get money, they tend to abuse it. And so our response to that here is to not shove money in your face every Sunday. 
but we are a charity. This is not a profitable organization and all the work we do here, the ministry work, the food distribution, the outreach into the community to those who are marginalized and struggling, all of that is charitable work and so we depend on donations. So twice a year, we talk about money. We talk about it in June. We talk about it in December. If you are just visit, visiting, like for the first time, this might feel like you have won the reverse lottery. <laughs> right? Because you're like, of course, they're talking about money on the day that I would show up. Well, the talk is really simple. It's just this. Every June, we invite you, if you consider this your church, and many of you do not, and that's okay, but if you consider this your church, if you like what we do, if you believe in our mission, we ask you to consider being a supporting member. So this is a little bit like public radio, right? Like, you know, if you like what we do, if you think it's important, then you pledge to give like a monthly gift. It might be five bucks, it might be 500 bucks, it might be $5,000, it honestly doesn't matter to me, right? We really believe that God pays for what God orders. So we don't really worry about whether or not it's going to be enough, but we do ask you to consider supporting us. And if you do give us like a five or a 50 or a $5,000 monthly pledge, just like public radio, you're gonna get a t-shirt, right? Like, it's our way of saying thanks. I know, you're like, I gave that much and I got a t-shirt and it's not even a very nice t-shirt, but hey, we're a charity, right? What can I say? Uh, so this is when we make that appeal. You might have noticed when you came in that many of you received uh, a handout and on the front side of this, it says annual membership drive. There are two ways for you to become a supporting member. One is to volunteer. We need lots of volunteers to do all the things we do. And on the front page of that insert, it's just a list of all the different ways you can volunteer here. And on the back side is a way for you to indicate that you would in fact like to volunteer. You can just check a box and say, yeah, I'm interested in helping with the food pantry or the anti-racism team or the queer committee, or a million other ways that you can get involved. Just check the box, and then put your name and phone and email address on this. And if you would like to make a pledge to give, you can write, yes, we plan to give a monthly gift of, and then there's a blank. You can write whatever you want to in that blank, or nothing. And then just take this, fold it up, pop it in the offering box that's at the back of the sanctuary back there, and then we will be in touch about like how you can get started with volunteering. Also, I'm gonna finally remember, Alexis, that there's another way for you to do this. If there's a QR code right up there on the screen, and if you take out your phone and scan it, uh, or you scan it on your bulletin, there's a regular bulletin, that will take you to an electronic way to do all that same stuff that I just talked about, right? So if you're a Gen Xer like me, and this doesn't make sense, then you can use the paper, right? If you're a millennial, then, you know, there you go. <laughs> all right. That's the big money talk, right? Like notice, I didn't say God would love you more if you gave us money. I didn't say checks would begin to magically appear in your mailbox if you gave us money. And there's a reason for that, it's because none of that is true, right? God loves you whether you give to us or not. And, and I'll tell you a secret, we do too. We love you whether you give to us or not. Uh, but we do need those of you who have extra money to give, so please do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I know, we're not very good at this, right? That's something I'm proud of. So, can we just pray and then we'll jump into the teaching for today. God, we thank you for today, for this opportunity for us to uh, come together, to raise our voices, to lift our prayers, to 
to sing songs that remind us what it's like to be connected to a spirit of love and grace and mercy. God, we thank you for the space that we have to gather to dedicate ourselves to that mission of drawing closer to a spirit of love and grace and mercy. Uh, and we're grateful for our families like the Cunninghams who are part of this place so that we can learn together how to be more loving and gracious and merciful. And we ask that today as we read these words of scripture that you'd remind us how we can continue to connect to that spirit. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you wouldn't know it by being here today, but Janelle and I spent the better part of our adult lives in expressions of Christianity, otherwise known as like Pentecostal or charismatic, right? And this isn't a terribly Pentecostal or charismatic church. We don't do a lot of the things that happen in those spaces. I know Janelle and I are not the only ones in this space that have that as a part of our history. Uh, but if you didn't know, that's kind of part of our history. And this came out of a time in our early 20s when we were going through kind of quarter-life crises in our lives and we were seeking to connect to a sense of spirituality. One of the things I've noticed and maybe you've noticed too is that no matter how distant Americans get from a sense of religion, there is still a collective value for spirituality. People are deeply hungry for spiritual experiences in their lives. That was true for us when we were in our early 20s and we were attracted to spaces where that spirituality was really physically conspicuous, right? Like it, people were like shaking and, you know, like praying in tongues and screaming like dogs, weird stuff, you guys, I know. Here's the thing, nowadays you can watch all that on YouTube, right? Like just Google YouTube, like Pentecostal weirdness, and I promise some amazing things will come up. For Janelle and I, those were in many ways very life-giving contexts. It's really easy, I think, to understand why in a space where people are experiencing uh, rejection and failure and self-doubt and a sense of disconnection from spirituality, that they would gather in spaces and they would do things like, at the end of a service, come to the front and lay themselves on an altar and cry and weep. Because they're desperate for a real sense of connection to something. It's also, I think, totally understandable why those same people would love it when others came to them and put their hands on them and prayed for them. We see that like laying on of hands in scripture all the time. You know, in the United States, we are a culture, this is becoming more and more part of like our dominant narrative. We are a culture that is becoming increasingly lonely. Right? And so it's understandable why people would come to the front in a space like this and and, and experience transformation when other human beings touch them, put their hands on them in care and love. And, and I think it's also completely understandable why in those same settings, people would experience healing from that sense of contact with the divine and that sense of connection to each other. And they would cry out and behave sometimes in ways that seem totally bizarre and weird, ways that we wouldn't like behave in public. Sometimes the depths of our pain and our suffering comes out of us in ways that are undignified. Listen, charismatic and Pentecostal expressions of Christianity offer safe spaces for people to do that. And it was our experience that those were really healing. And maybe you've experienced that too. But here's something else I've experienced. 
After a while, a certain pecking order begins to form around those things. The people who do come to the front and lay themselves at the altar and weep, over time, they become the more spiritual ones. The people who are willing to come forward and put their hands on others and pray for them become the people who begin to be recognized authorities. And the people who claim to have been healed or do the healing suddenly begin to aggregate real power. And that's also something that I noticed in those spaces. And people begin to behave in ways that are not only a little bit weird or you know, unusual, but actually in ways that are harmful. Our church uh, was one of those churches that was like on the circuit for prophets. Like every other week, some new prophet was in town promising the moon to people who would behave in the right ways. And I remember one time, one guy showed up, right? He was praying for people, and people were like falling over, like cheap suits everywhere, right? And, and here's the thing about me. Like, I'm a highly skeptical person. Right? I'm fairly like analytical, fairly skeptical human being, but I'm also wide open to new experiences. So I'm coming up front. I'm going to try that. Right? Like I want to know, is it real? Right? So I remember this one time a guy came and he was doing that and I came to the front and that guy put his hand on my forehead, right? And he began to pray for me and I was like, okay, let's go. Come on. I want the lightning bolt of God to like come through me. And I felt something, right? And what I felt was him beginning to slowly push <laughs> against my forehead. And I was like, I don't think that's God. And then like, so of course, you know, he sort of slowly pushed on my forehead and I started to like, and I was like, um, so I'm, I just pushed back. <laughs> just sort of my personality in a nutshell, right? <laughs> And, you know, he felt me push back, right? Felt me push back, and so he pushed a little harder. And I was like... And squared myself, like, in a, you know, athletic stance, and I pushed my forehead into it. And he, like, just ever so cleverly began to keep pushing me to the point where at some point, I'm pretty sure, I was like this. <laughs> oh, to be as naive as Siri, because I, I do understand that whole experience was an experience of human beings mindlessly conforming to a kind of performative expression of power. Now, here's the thing about it. Here's the, here's the exchange. The exchange is, if I would just give in, if I would just fall over onto the ground, I would instantly gain credibility in that congregation as somebody who was slain in the spirit. And he, in return, would gain affirmation of his anointing. And in that way, we both create power for ourselves. That's how that transaction works. I can tell you because I lived it for the better part of 15 years and I benefited from that transaction. I gained power in those spaces by doing exactly that. And that power is incredibly easy 
to fake, to gain, and to abuse. Human beings will act in spectacularly bizarre ways in order to be affirmed, to be loved, to be accepted, and to gain power. And all of that is not, hear me please, all of that, what I just said, is not to discredit the very authentic thing that happens when a human being in their desperation for connection to the divine and to each other throws themselves on an altar in a worshipful space and weeps. And this is what's hard about religious spaces, is disentangling what's true from what's not. And so, partly because that is our experience, both the good and the bad of it, Janelle and I, as ministers who have come from those spaces of abusive expressions of spirituality that can also be transformative and good, is that in this space, we really struggle with how to encourage and model and practice expressions of spirituality that are still transformative, but not as susceptible to abuse, right? Like, listen, we're at the end of Pride Month. This entire month is an opportunity for us to recognize how religion has been abusive and harmful to a particular group of people. But I think it would be a huge mistake to toss out spirituality and the spirit of God because we have abused it. Okay, now I have to get through my sermon. Um, Here's what I want to share with you today. We've been talking about how to follow the Spirit, and I want to read this passage to you. Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, I'm going to actually read verses 1 through 4, and hopefully we'll have all that up on the screen. If not, you can just listen. Uh, but here's what the passage I want you to listen to today. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 says this. Here is my servant whom I uphold. Now, this is Isaiah. Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet, a Hebrew prophet. Isaiah is speaking an oracle of prophecy in Scripture. That means that these are words that are to be received as words from God that are coming through Isaiah. And here's what he says. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, there, that word spirit, we focused on the Hebrew word in this series, the Hebrew word ruach, which is the Hebrew word that is typically used for spirit. Typically, it is translated as wind or breath, and it is this Hebrew notion of this spirit of God, right? And we've looked at how ruach appears in the Hebrew Bible, and this is one of those instances. There actually aren't very many spots in the Hebrew Bible where ruach appears. This is one of them. And in this passage, the the prophet says, I've put my spirit upon this person who's called a servant. Now, here's what you should know. This whole portion of Isaiah is what has come to be known as Second Isaiah. Isaiah is sort of distinctively divided up into three books that we know were written at three different times in history and then put together later by editors because of the different uh, literary styles that they represent. This is Second Isaiah. Second Isaiah encompasses several chapters that begin in Isaiah chapter 40, and it, and it fixates on this idea of this servant person. 
Now, in Christianity, we tend to identify that servant with Jesus, and I think we'll see why in just a moment. But I think for now, it's important for you to understand that there's this motif that emerges in this whole section of Isaiah around this figure known as the servant. And this servant, I think, tells us something very important about what it means to be spiritual. That is, what it means to be connected to or following the Spirit of God. And here's the first thing that we learn, that this Spirit comes upon human beings. And we already saw that last week in Psalm chapter 51, where in 51, right in the middle of the psalm, like verses 8, 9, and 10, we saw this narrative where David is crying out and saying, your spirit has come to me, within me is the word that David uses. Please don't take your spirit from me. So now we have this sense that the spirit of God, the ruach of God, somehow comes upon us or within us in a way that in Psalm 51 moves David along the pendulum away from the experience of darkness to the experience of light. Here, what we have is another experience of darkness and light, but we have to read the rest of the passage for you to get that. So back to verse one, I put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. There's the light. So in this case, the spirit of God comes to the servant for the purpose of bringing justice to the nations. So this is not like Psalm 51, where David is having an internal battle between his own darkness and his own light, and that pendulum swing back and forth. Now this has been sort of zoomed out to the macro level. The spirit comes not just to make the person feel better about themselves, not just to be in a better place, but also now to bring justice to the nations. Now, what kind of justice? Verse 2, he will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. So the first thing we learn is that the purpose of the Spirit, the purpose of being connected to the Spirit, at least for Isaiah, is that that Spirit would empower that person to bring about justice. Now, we don't have time to like survey the book of Isaiah, but you know, just take my word for it for now until later when you go back and look up in your own Bibles and just decide whether or not I'm telling you the truth, right? For now, just believe me that for Isaiah, and for Jesus, justice means meeting people's human needs. It means rescuing the marginalized and the oppressed. It means reconciling people to each other. This should sound a lot to you like the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What kingdom, Jesus? Give us this day our daily bread. When the Spirit of God comes, when justice is achieved, human beings who are hungry have bread to eat. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts or our trespasses. I'm team debts. I don't know about you, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Forgiveness, reconciliation. 
and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Oh, the ability to live a life that is free from the, the entrapments and the, and the snares of self-destruction. This is justice. Justice is meeting people's human needs. It's teaching people how to forgive. It's teaching them how to live lives that are good. This is what the Holy Spirit comes for in the Hebrew Bible, to bring about justice. And what kind of justice is that? Well, that justice is, interestingly enough, I think, in verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4, characterized as gentleness. Verse 2, he will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. I don't know who this person is who can somehow achieve massive social change without lifting up their voice in the street. But Isaiah characterizes the justice, the Spirit of God, as somebody who does not yell out loud in the street. In other words, it's not somebody who draws attention to themselves. It's not somebody who goes out and creates a spectacle for themselves. This conjures up, I think, images of Jesus talking about those experts in the law who go out and they pray conspicuously and they ring bells, right? They do it all to attract attention to themselves, not to the needs of the community. And in doing that, Jesus says, they have received their reward in full. In other words, what they're looking for is attention, and that's what they get. But this person, this servant, who is characterized by the Spirit of God, the way that they go about trying to achieve this justice is not by drawing attention to themselves, but by quietly ministering to the needs of others. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. This is, it occurs to me, exactly the opposite of how we try to bring about justice. I don't know when you were last on Twitter, but listen, the discourse on Twitter is not gentleness. Is it even conceivable that we might be able to bring out real social change to like fill hungry bellies, to house houseless persons, to heal chronic illnesses, and not break a bent reed? This is a deeply challenging passage to me. And, and the part of me that, you know, is like pushing back against that guy's hand right up front in that church, that part of me is like, yeah, but Jesus flipped tables over. Like, does Jesus even comply with this image of a kind of gentleness, a kind of meek servant? I don't know. I think that's a really difficult question to answer. But here's what we do know about Jesus. Jesus did not fulfill an expression of a Messiah who took up arms, gathered an army, and marched in war to overthrow their enemies. And that's what everybody was expecting. So in this sense, Jesus does resemble this servant in Isaiah 
whose commitment to justice is something that comes about through gentleness. Somebody who does not break a reed that is already bruised. Somebody who does not quench a dimly lit wick. And maybe that's the key. Maybe the key is that the reed is already bent and bruised. And so the servant of Isaiah is gentle with those who are hurting. The candle is already flickering faintly. Jesus doesn't snuff that out. Um, But for those who are ablaze with their arrogance, for those who are firm in their drunkenness on power, Jesus does treat them more harshly. He does satirize those who abuse power. He does flip the tables of those who are oppressing others. And so for us, then the clue here is that when we are following the Spirit, we are giving our time, our attention to making things right for those who are hurting, suffering, bruised, flickering faintly. And with them, we are gentle. With them, we do bring about a kind of justice through this unusual characteristic of gentleness. This, I think, is a a very high and difficult calling to be a people who follow in the footsteps of this servant that Isaiah is describing, who Jesus characterizes in his own ministry, somebody who dedicates themselves to feeding those who are hungry without attracting attention to ourselves, uh, maybe without, uh, you know, putting that selfie of ourselves feeding the poor on Instagram. There's a high calling, I think, to give ourselves to helping bring healing to those who are sick in whatever expression of sickness they might be suffering from, and to do it not for our own gain, not so that we can somehow rise in the pecking order of our religious tradition or our social circles. It's a high calling, I think, to learn to be people who forgive debts and trespasses, to forgive each other, to be genuinely reconciled to each other, even when it means that we have to repent. This is, by the way, a passage that is typically used to point to Jesus, but make no mistake, these are Hebrew scriptures. And here's why I think that's important to remember, because this was a vocational calling for the Jewish people. Not just one person to be this kind of servant, somebody who models justice in the key of gentleness, but rather to be an entire nation, an entire group, an entire ethnicity whose whole vocation in the world, whose existence is to bring justice in gentleness. That's Israel's calling. As Christians, we recognize that Jesus fulfilled that calling as a person. But Jesus fulfilling it doesn't mean that I'm let off the hook. 
If I'm a follower of Jesus, if I learn to live my life according to the way that he taught me to pray and to live, then I am grafted into that calling even though I'm not Jewish. That means that all of us, every one of us who calls Jesus our rabbi, we are now ushered into that vocation. We are to be a people who pursue justice in gentleness. And that cannot happen. It's impossible for that to happen without genuine inspiration. This is what the word inspiration means. It means to be filled by the divine spirit. We can't live into this high calling unless we have connection, a sense of contact with the spirit that's bigger than us. I said this a week or two ago. Every artist knows what this is like. <laughs> to pursue like a sculpture or a painting or a, a, a piece of woodwork or to compose a bit of music or maybe to write a speech. None of that can be done effectively or transformatively unless you are inspired. Certainly, we can't bring about good change in our world unless we're inspired. This is what it means to be spiritual. I think it means to make contact with the Ruach, the spirit of something other than us, so that we can do something that is utterly beyond us. Some of you are sick of me, you know, using this quote, but I, I can just never, ever get over uh, Chesterton's quote, right? Spiritual, or Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficult and left untried. This is difficult. This is hard. I have people in my life that I don't want to be reconciled to. The only way that's ever going to happen is if I am connected to a spirit that is bigger than me that empowers me to be able to do it. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do that by engaging in the same kinds of spiritual practices that Jesus did. In Scripture, we see that Jesus studied the words of Scripture. We see that Jesus prayed earnestly. We see that Jesus communed with people who were marginalized and oppressed. All of these are spiritual practices, just like coming to the altar or laying hands on each other in prayer. All of these things can be good, important, effective ways for us to connect to a sense of spirit. Or every one of these things can be a way for us to create it. A new pecking order. A new system of injustice. It's up to us to discern the difference. To hold each other accountable when we are engaging in our spiritual practices in a way that empowers us to make a difference or we are engaging in our spiritual practices in a way that empowers us to become oppressive. There's no perfect system for making sure that doesn't happen. We have to hold each other accountable to that. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to be challenged by these words, be stretched by the passage from the book of Isaiah, 
to be called to a life of spirituality that empowers us to make things right. We ask that you would help us to be people who are filled by a sense of your spirit when we sing these songs and we pray these prayers and we read these words and when we hang out together and eat meals together and when we teach our children what it means to be good and right and true, we pray that in all of these activities and all of these practices and all of these rituals, that we would not just create more unjust structures, but instead that we would be transformed to become people who make a difference in the world. We have the courage to meet real human needs, to forgive each other, to become people of goodness and righteousness and peace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.